This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, this is Ernie Hudson, and you're listening to Canned Air Podcast. everyone and welcome to another episode of Canned Air, your tribute to pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I am Randy Hardenbrook. <laughs> Look at that copycat. Yeah, make it really, really... <laughs> I had the same thought, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> We've got a good episode for you guys today. Our guest... Uh, worked stunts, stunt coordinator and stuntman on so many amazing movies. Uh, just to name a few, Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, Total Recall, Galaxy Quest. That's one that yeah, that's right. come Ooh. up in the uh, episode, unfortunately. But Thor, uh, Lincoln, T3, Rise of the Machines. That was one I wanted to ask about, and so many more. And has directed films like White Elephant, uh, Hell Hath No Fury, The Beautiful Ones. Avengement, The Debt Collector, and that list also goes on. There's a lot of stuff he's done, yeah. Very busy man. But uh, he's here today to not only talk about himself with us, but to talk about his newest movie, One Ranger, with Thomas Jane, uh, Dean Jagger, Dominique Tipper, and John Malkovich. We welcome stunt performer, stunt coordinator, writer, and director Jesse V. Johnson to the show. And that was a great conversation. Yes, it was. (laughs) And he's English. And he's English, yes. Thank you, Randy, <laughs> for pointing out what's going to become very evident here in a few minutes. <laughs> Why does he sound funny? I wouldn't say funny. I would say, as Americans, a British accent sounds charming. Yes. Yeah. yes. No matter what, he could be cussing us out and we'd be swooning. I'd give very him any endearing. job there was because he's got the accent. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to our conversation with Jesse, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pod, on Instagram at Canned underscore Air, and on TikTok at Candare Podcast and at CandarePodcast.com. You can follow up on old episodes, but there's a few different ways there you can support us. Our Patreon tab, where 5 to $10 a month gets you access to a three-year-old catalog, maybe four years uh, at this point. I don't know. I think it's older than me. The number always fluctuates. So many years. So many years so many. of content. It's worth your money, people. And if extra content isn't your game, maybe you want a T-shirt or a hat. Uh, then the merch tab is where you're going to do that. All kinds of different shirt designs on there, some of which by Joshua Bellis, the fourth member of the Candare team yes, here. the satellite member. Exactly. <laughs> so check that stuff out. And uh, what am I forgetting? Uh, no matter how you're listening to us, uh, give us a like, give us a review. It helps so much. That uh, does. It does, it does. And then a uh, big shout-out to evergreenpodcast.com, the uh, network we're proud to be a part of. And finally, uh, it, clock is winding down to our 500th episode. Yeah. So, do you have any favorite moments or kind of standout, I guess, moments from the show? Let us know, and we'll uh, kind of get that over on the 500th. And I totally fucked that up, but hey, I that's think all. they get the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I definitely do. If I've... you have a standout moment from the show, let us know. We actually got one. We actually got a moment uh, from a listener, a patron, Chelsea Richardson. <laughs> so I'm excited to include that. Joshua says he has some. 
and I still need your guys's. This is going to be a jam-packed episode yes, 500, ladies and gentlemen. It's so, hard. It's hard finding a standout episode of the show because I've been on many of them, and those are all my favorites. <laughs> the ones you haven't been on? That I have been on. Oh, are, well, there's nothing wrong with that. The ones that Jack hasn't been down. on are my favorites. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, I think it'll be great. I cannot freaking wait, and um, I'd rather have too many than not enough. Oh, but it has yeah. been difficult to find some of those clips. I have a few in mind, but I, I keep going back and looking through those old episodes, looking for that piece of gold that's going to come out It's hard to remember there's me. been... S- 400 some episodes so you had to pick yeah. a couple of favorites yeah so oh I forgot about that one. got our work cut out for us but it'll be worth it mm-hmm. it'll be worth it and I think that's all that's left to be said so let's just jump right over to our conversation with Jesse V. Johnson Jesse, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show here with us tonight. This is uh, really awesome to have you. A big fan of your work and really loved uh, One Ranger. It was a lot of fun, and I cannot wait to talk about it, man. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Like I said, the movie was fantastic. So many things to touch on. But before we do, uh, I'd love to know where our guests come from, a little bit about your background. And really all I can find about your growing up is that you grew up in uh, Winchester and that you liked American Westerns. That's about it. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up? Uh, I am currently in Los Angeles. I came here about 30 years ago. I'm from the UK. Uh, I'm more American now than I'm English in my mind, although I guess it stays with you, doesn't it? It never really leaves you. Uh, (laughs) As we get older, we become more like the uh, uh, countrymen that we left when we were young. But uh, yeah, I grew up. I, I was I was born in Winchester. I didn't I've, I didn't spend very much time there. I grew up in the home counties, which is sort of Berkshire, Windsor, Maidenhead. It's very green. There's a lot of woods, and I'd run off there and make my movies and war films and all that sort of stuff from a very early age. Uh, it was a little different then to what it is now. Uh, so I have children. So I left school around 14. You had to get a note saying that you had a full time job. At the time, I think it was Bacti and Company who rent they rent guns to movies. Uh, and I'd managed to sort of work, work in there as an apprentice, building the blank guns, you know, uh, threading the barrels and all that sort of stuff. Oh, cool. Props and knives that collapse and blood spurts out of them. Uh, and I'd managed to talk my high school into letting me go, you know. Uh, I, I I don't know. There's, there's certain mornings where I've woken up on location where I wish that I had carried on and got a college degree and sort of gone a little bit further with my education. And then there's other times... <laughs> With what I did, you know, uh, I, I look at the film school that my daughter went to. She's 22 and went back to England. It's like, oh, my God, if only I had that. But they didn't even exist back then. They, they didn't exist in the way that they exist now. You know, it was a very different time. Uh, and, and I think I was very lucky. I caught the very tail end of the industry where films were being made in a way that they were overlapping in Los Angeles. You know, you can, right. I'd get the Thomas Guide, which is a map. Uh, and then I get the Hollywood Reporter that said what was in development. I'd look at the addresses and I'd basically put them all close together, all the ones that were close together with a red dot and the addresses. And I'd have six or seven different resumes and just hit every single one. <laughs> and, uh, on three different shows a week as a location manager, assistant location, assistant office PA, photocopying things, floor runner, art department PA, whatever. I, I, as far as I was concerned, there was nothing I could lose but the roof over my head. So let's just keep working and working and working and, sure. and cut to sort of three or four years of that. And I'm fairly steadily being hired as a, uh, 
uh, a PA with a fantastic group of ADs, John Woodward, uh, Tom Schellenberg, and, and, and these guys were doing really high quality movies. They had a very good reputation for handling huge crowd scenes. Shawshank Redemption with 2,400 on our big their biggest day, there was 2,400 extras. And that's, you know, so if you think about that, you've got one foot in logistics, you have to get them all in at the right time, all doing their paperwork. So they get paid at the end of the day and we get the releases. And then they've got to get through wardrobe, makeup, hair. They've got to be checked by each of those you know, groups of people. And then you've got to get them out onto set, talk through what they're doing, where they are and design background action for them and have them ready to go as soon as possible. It's a really, really cool thing for to be doing. And you learn, and, and in that microcosm of employment there on the side of the film set as a PA, you're basically learning around what it make, is to make a big movie or, you know, that's everything you need to know at that point, really, mm-hmm. you know, short of camera angles and all that kind of stuff. But really, <laughs> And so I did Mr. Holland's Opus with them, which was huge. Oh, scene. Love that Basically, movie. Portland, Oregon. We shot through the summer. We had between four and 500 extras on it. You know, just nonstop. Uh, uh, the Birdcage, where we had an awful lot of, you know, dancers. Mm. Was, uh, Warner Brothers in Florida. And then uh, How to Make an American Quilt, Mortal Kombat, where we had, I think 300 martial artists. So it was a really, you know, and it was just, you know, at the end I was just working nonstop and loving every second of it. But I realized I wanted to direct. There was no time whatsoever because I'm going from one job to another. And as a, as an assistant director, you're the first one to work in the morning and the last one to leave. (laughs) On Shawshank, I was sleeping fully dressed, you know, four, three, four, five hours a night. Wow. Sleep was five hours was a luxury, you know, Uh, and you end of it, you, you you know, I knew enough to know that as a wannabe director, I needed to have a script. I needed to have multiple scripts ready to go. That's what was that's what was going to set me free, the ability to have these scripts that people liked. To write those scripts, I needed to either write it myself or to meet with writers and and and, and obtain material, option material, as they call it, you know. Uh, and I just didn't have time. And I, I'd been signing out stuntmen all the time. I saw what they were making and what the, their base rate was more than I was making for the whole month. And, and then, you know, their daily rate was my weekly rate. And then you're like, and on top of that, they get a bump for doing a stunt. And my family were in stunts. I trained and all that sort of stuff. So I made a I made a sojourn into stunt work and I've never, never looked back. It was fantastic. So that was, wow. I've just encapsulated my, my, you know, my rise from 14 year old high school dropout. <laughs> yeah, you just dropped a nuke yeah. on about half of my interview there, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I was my next thing I was going to ask is, you know, at what age you were getting into the industry, but you again, it sounded like very very young you were already uh making movies around uh, you know, on your own and uh had great interest in this. It, it was wonderful. It was as I say, it was a different it was a different time because when I arrived in, in LA, I was 19 or 18, uh, and all of my friends were 18, 19, 21. You know, Ron Bergman, who's now producing uh, the, the Glass Onion and Star Wars, uh, all of these guys, we were, all, we were all 19 or 20 years old. Uh, Simon Emanuel, who produced the last Indiana Jones, you know, uh, and, you know, and Batman before that, the one with uh, Robert Pattinson. We, we, oh, were, wow. we were hungry motherfuckers and now i'm allowed to swear and that's what we were. <laughs> so it's all this sort of talking and, and comparing and finding out what was going on and you know to make a short film to make sizzle reels we you know we called on each other and, and pulled it together and people would look at it and go this is awful what are you thinking do it this way and i don't think that exists much anymore i mean maybe you could say it did in atlanta there's a lot of people there i don't know but it's become so disparate now everything's sort of handled by internet and it's not quite the same a uh, vibrant sort of bohemian feeling. None of us had any money. None of you know. Mm. You know talking about 
you know, any, any, anyone got any secret ways to make cash? How can we make rent this month? <laughs> Everyone, you know, there's some people working as PAs on, on porno movies, anything they could just to keep the flow of money going through so right. films financed and made. And it's, it's exciting. It's vibrant. Uh, it's very, very fertile for a mind, you know, young mind to continuously be moving and coming up with stories that might fit that in potential investor or rich person or production company. Uh, you went on hundreds of, of meetings with potential people that, you know, obviously 99% of them went nowhere, but it was very funny. We'd meet eccentrics with money that wanted to dabble in the game. And you're not quite sure if they're a gangster or a murderer. Or, or just, <laughs> um, but you're doing anything you can to find money. At my position now, luckily, I have companies approaching me and I, I don't have to take many of those, but I still meet some strange people who want to get into the game and who have it. You have to take those meetings. But it's it's it was really interesting for me. I'm not sure if it's as I say, I, I, I choose my words carefully because I don't want to give anyone the wrong advice because you know I used to watch interviews with directors or filmmakers, and that was how I taught myself as an autodidact. And I wouldn't want to steer someone in the wrong direction because I just don't know if that world exists anymore. I, I, mm, you know, I, yeah. I don't know what you would do if there were an equivalent or maybe it does exist and I'm just not noticing it because they're all 20 or 21 years old in there. Right. <laughs> it's part of LA that I live in. Uh, maybe it is exciting, but I remember you drive from one side of, uh, you know, Hollywood to the other, you pass at least five different, you know, film productions, TV productions. And that's fun. That was really exciting. And I caught the very tail end of that. And I think that's how I managed to make a go of it. I don't, you know, uh, because looking back, I'm not a hundred percent sure how it all went as as well as it went. <laughs> right, just happened to slip in yeah. at the right time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I think the English accent when you get here, I think that you know counted for a bit. You know, oh yeah, thought they were getting something that was a little classier and nicer than it was. Little did they know. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's got an accent. Get him in here. <laughs> I, I remember one where they, there was a huge table full of people, probably 30 people at this company. They just fired the director. It was a soccer movie. They just fired the director. And, and one of the assistants said, oh, I, I, I know I know a director who's English. And they're like, get him in here right now. And I, <laughs> I, I remember because I was on set on another film and I'd driven the, the – it was a you know 1968 Dodge Charger that I was driving at the moment, and it only just made it to the to the meeting because it kept breaking down. It looked fantastic, <laughs> but it's the bad guy car from Bullet, and I had it done in black, just like the one that you know the two. Oh wow! Uh, so I got there and did this meeting. And it was about soccer, and I, I know nothing about football or soccer. I, I didn't follow it. I, I I love movies. I love everything to do with movies. I don't really follow sports. I I like to yes. watch it because I like some of the techniques they use. But really, it's but I've been I said have you. You know, you know, you know football. You you love football, right? You're English, and I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I love it. They <laughs> <laughs> do. I'm English. And, uh, you know, crazy, and that was, you know, it wasn't a great movie. Uh, we, we had a lot of a lot going against us on that one. But I met Ross McCall. I met Deborah Del Pret. I met Linda McDonough. I, I met, you know, I worked with John Hall again, and you know, that, those were the sort of interesting things that were happening at that point in, in LA. It was wonderful, you know. Yeah, awesome. So was it indeed the uh, American Western then that kickstarted all that, or was there a, a, something else, a particular project, particular mo movie, TV show that really was, was like made you want to be a director, get into this business? I mean, as a kid, I grew up. I mean, it sounds like I'm Methuselah. I was thinking about it the other day, but I grew up not that long ago, and we couldn't afford a VCR, you know, because a VCR at that point was very expensive, and the tape. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, a hundred pounds, you know 
mass or minus for for a video cassette which is about two hundred dollars and if you can't afford a vcr then you might that's that's way beyond so it was right. a strange time my, my childhood was made up of these comic books kind of movie magazines that had pictures in them everything from sci-fi movies to horror movies to action movies and they fasc- the, the imagery the photos were what fascinated me and i didn't realize till a lot later that i thought i'd seen a lot of movies but in actual fact i just read a vast a, a vast amount about them growing up <laughs> <laughs> and, you know you guys are all quite young i don't know but for me that was that was how it worked back then it, you know and, and trying to get to the movie theater if you lived in the uh in the in you know in suburbia was 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 not as easy as if you were in the city so it was tricky so i loved these things you know you know horror movies sci-fi uh i think mad max was something that uh, you know the pictures just upset obsessed me and we finally got a betamax recorder on it i wore out the tape to the road <laughs> it was so so worn out the tracking you couldn't even watch it it's it was you know I oh, watched wow. it over, <laughs> over and over i drew i drew the imagery i started out storyboarding a lot i loved all that sort of thing so i i, I storyboarded you know how it was put together and i realized that they were very similar to comic book frames, the way it was framed. I, I recognize the same thing with Sergio Leone's Fist for the Dollars, the Dollar Trilogy. The, the frames are very similar to the frames that I loved in 2000 AD with Judge Dredd, the comic books that I loved. And the similarity, mm-hmm. and, and then you'd watch English TV uh, or low-budget American, and you say, why is this so extraordinarily dull? Why is it so boring to look at? And you realize they weren't using the frame. They weren't using the, the, the way the picture, you know, the lighting, the that it was just boring. It was simply, you know, a wide angle to a medium to a tight and back, you know, back and forth. Right. Mm-hmm. And then cutting over the shoulder, cutting over the shoulder. Right. It was rudimentary and boring. And yet, and yet in Mad Max, in, in a Road Warrior, in Star Wars, in, in Fistful of Dollars, it was it was putting on your edge of your seat. There was something exciting. And it was a direct correlation to comic books that really excited me. And this was something I wanted to do. So then it became shooting the storyboards with a video camera. And the rest is history from that point on, really, you know. That's but it, awesome. That was the birth of it all, you know. And so it was, you know, you know, I think I you know, we rented a Super 8 of of Alien and Clash of the Titans, I think, and, you know, and we I watched that over and over. That was and that was difficult because you have to loop it each time and make sure the windows are closed. Right. And yeah. Watch it. It was awkward. But you know, once it all started sort of happening, it happened very, very quickly and, and technology evolved very, very quickly through through videos where they became you know affordable and vcrs and it was good but the very early days as i think you were asking it was tricky it was you know it was just a mystery that was offered by these these stories there were bubblegum cards with the dra- the hammer house of horror dracula oh, characters yeah. yeah and i collected those and thought, this is incredible this is wonderful look at look at christopher lee and very interesting my first second unit directing gig was the young indiana jones chronicles and i got to work with christopher lee and joss Ackland. <gasps> Oh, and, wow. That's awesome. With this wonderful widow's peak that was actually a wig by that point, but it was okay. It didn't matter. But stories <laughs> with this wonderful baritone, which I, I absolutely recognized as Count Dracula. And it was, it was brilliant. It was, it, I could, it, it was probably one of the least productive second units I've ever been in charge of because it, I was just in love with, with listening to this guy talk who, who I'd grown up with, you know? Uh, so absolutely cool. how incredible what an awesome story yeah. to have and i'm sure it's just the tip of the iceberg with your uh, awesome stories all the people you've met the cool work you've done uh there's a lot i've been very lucky i i, I don't know you know as i say this the, the fella that dropped out of school and read a lot of books you know it was a uh it's, i've been extraordinarily lucky I, I remember a moment where i knew i was panicked and i knew i was i was screwed i was i was a pa on 
it was Mr. Holland's Opus, funnily enough, in Portland, Oregon. And two of the other PAs had gone to film school. And I remember them talking to me. And I realized at that point I was ill-educated. Uh, I didn't know as much about film history as that. I went to the local film. I, I think we, I was making $500 a week on that one. So I took everything after taxes. And I bought, and I still have the books up on the shelf here. I now have 11 books on Sam Peckinpah. But at the time, it was Sam Peckinpah, John Ford, and Hawks. And I just read them and read them and read them and read them. And then the book collection started growing and I realized the industry doesn't really change. It's the same industry as it was in 1920. Sure. The, the technology changes uh, and, and elements of it change, fashions and fads change, but the, the involvement of getting a film financed, which is very expensive, it's always been expensive, getting actors attached to it, getting people interested in it, taking it out and getting it seen, and then realizing that you should have saved some money back and made a deal on PA, uh, because that's also part of the responsibility of making a film successful. Uh, this has all stayed the same. It really, you know, since 1918, 1920, nothing much has changed. Right. Mm -hmm. By reading these books and realizing that these heroes that people looked at now had to go through the same sort of trials and tribulations. It was, it was wonderful. It excited me. It, it, it gave me the feeling that this can actually be done. This is good. I, right. don't <laughs> I didn't go to film school. I didn't finish uh, high school. It's okay. That, that wasn't what helped them out of a, a tight spot. Their imagination, their ingenuity, their unwillingness to give up, the fact that they arrived early when everyone else was arriving slightly later, the fact that they prepared, did their homework, came with with ideas, you know, uh, uh, even if it was bombast and, and sort of, uh, you know, hubris, it was a idea and it got them out of a tight spot while the other guy was still making up his mind and scratching his head. These sort of things were, were you know, were what I took away from all of these books. And it's, it's managed to, you know, the rest is down to me. Any failures that I've had in my career are down to me. But the, but the formula of, of being able to educate yourself, I think, is solid. Absolutely. I, it just makes me think a lot of like when we were starting this show, not that this show is anywhere nearly as successful as you, but <laughs> all the same, you know, we, just a lot of listening and a lot of reading um, what other people were doing. You know, we never went to any uh, kind of training or schooling for anything. No. Just by the seat of your pants, hearing what other people have done, taking that knowledge and applying it the best you can and uh, just always wanting to grow. That's incredible, man. The ability to grow, the ability to change. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, look, you're really good at what, you know, you're really good, but at the moment you're having a dry spot. The work's not coming in, but you keep hammering away at the same direction. I said, if I could give you one bit of advice that's got me out of it is if it's if it starts to go dry and that idea you're hammering away at just simply isn't getting any reception, change, change. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. Real quick, reinvent yourself, cut your hair, come out, put a new outfit on. Now you're directing comedies, whatever it takes. Just just don't be one of those guys that ha tries to flog their dead horse because they end up dying next to that horse so often. Yep. And I, yeah. I've seen it now 30 years <laughs> Unfortunately, I got this great idea for a script two years yet later. Yeah, I'm still pushing it five years later. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I know it took Scorsese 11 years for Gangs of New York, you know, uh, uh, Attenborough 17 years to get Gandhi made, but they kept working. They were extraordinarily successful. You know, right. they, that was the one thing they were doing, what, you, what you're doing is, and, and you, you, give, you try to give people advice, just, just bear off, take a little... Put that one on ice. It's not going to go away. If anything, it'll get better with a little bit of space because you'll come back to it with a fresher point of view. But go right. on. Yep. Do something else. Another movie. Another another script. Find someone else to collaborate with. Uh, do anything. But but you know, it's it's inactivity that, and it's the knowledge to know when to move 
in a different direction. That's self-preservation, I think, you know. Sounds like you guys have done really well with it as well. So well done. Well, I mean, as far as independent podcasters who don't, aren't making a lot of money, I think we're doing pretty damn good. But, yeah. you know, it's funny you say all that. We're entering our 500th episode. And, you know, we right before we got on this call, we were kind of having a conversation. It's like it's time to evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that so time now. hearing you say all that stuff is just very reassuring. So I like how that all happened. <laughs> I'm taking inspiration from you guys, boys. So that's that's it. Good. <laughs> okay, I've got to ask you about something that's gonna it's gonna veer off the path, and you're probably gonna be like, "What the hell?" But I got to ask anyway because I was on IMDb looking at some of your credits, and a credit that I found, uh, I think it was from '98, '97, '98, was uh, from season seven, episode eight of Walker Texas Ranger, where you played a character uh, named Scott Olin, and I was a big fan of that show. Could you uh, tell me what, what what your involvement was? What was the character doing? What, what was yeah, your I, experience on that show? I'm going to give you a long answer because, you know, I, I have a tendency to give long answers. Uh, That's fine. I, the film I did in the U.S., when I first came out, Chuck Norris was one of the guys I met who was just extraordinarily lovely and generous to me early on. Uh, I became friends with Eric Norris, his son, who's now a very, very, very successful second unit director and first unit director, one of the best, best you know, in the game, uh, never stops working. They had me on Walker, Texas Ranger, somewhere around 13 or 20 episodes. Uh, it was one of the wonderful sort of treats I'd get when I'd see that on my pager, uh, when I'd see the Texas you know, uh, area code come up and get the call to go out there. He treats his stuntmen or treated his stuntmen so well. It was a limousine, especially for the stunt guys who'd pick you up from the airport. Uh, you'd go out there, you'd do a couple of fights with him and jump on the plane and come back. The residuals were fantastic from CBS. Uh, it was like one of those lovely little gifts that would come as a stuntman every once in a while. Uh, I would never say no to an episode of, of I did I did Walker and I did uh, uh, Sons of Thunder, which was a spin-off of you know the, of his show. And I did three or four episodes of that, uh, Nash Bridges and uh, some other ones. But but it was a uh, so Scott Olin episode was I think. It was IRA, they were IRA men, and I, I I took some of my English military gear, which which I had you know left over and wore that in the scene, and I think there was some dialogue involved. Again, they hired me because they figured Irish English is the same kind of thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got you got a paragraph of dialogue. You go, you're okay with that. It's the same. You know, just, just do it. Yeah, you know, no one will know the difference. Everyone knows the fucking difference between English. And <laughs> I, I just remember being extraordinarily terrified. You know, stomach upside down. And farting as you're as you're waiting to do this bit of dialogue you know that you only get one take everyone else gets two or three takes but because you're the you know sort of like the guest star or whatever, you know not way below guest star whatever that would be David, <laughs> but you're going to get one go and you're going you're to say your lines and if it's shit they're going to keep it anyway and move on and, and, and so you it's you've got to be on your toes and uh and then did a big fight scene you got beat up on it uh i think either shot or beat up one of the two i can't remember but scott oh, Olin was one of a one of 13 or 20 episodes, fight scenes, bit part playing. I never used to fight much for credits or anything. Like that. I never really cared about that. Uh, someone told me very early on in the game, don't get too obsessed with what you're earning uh, as a stuntman. Don't don't go and pester about you know the about the you know adjustment for the day. Just be surprised at what it is. Force yourself to be surprised at what it is, and you'll find yourself a lot happier in your work than constant, you know, and it was really good advice. It was probably a stunt coordinator who gave it to me <laughs> for, for not what I was getting paid, but it actually made the whole job a lot easier. And I never really chased up 
uh, credits and things like that. But yeah, it was it was quite a few quite a few episodes, and uh, it was also to bring us back to the subject matter, how I discovered the uh, sort of mythology of the Texas Rangers. When you landed at Love Field, there was this huge statue of a Texas, you know, Texas Ranger, and it said one Wyatt, one Ranger. I looked up that, and it was like McDonald as he got off the train. It was a big bare knuckle fight. I think I think uh, uh, gentleman Jim Corbett and and some other guy, and they were concerned there was going to be a huge riot, so they called the Texas Rangers to come help out with this riot that was predicted. The train comes in, you know, and then leaves, and you know, dust and everything like the opening of Once Upon a Time in the West. And there's one guy <laughs> standing on the state at the station, and the town mayor is there, the sheriff, and all the all the you know sort of heads of dignitaries, and they're like. We call for the Texas Rangers. What's what's the deal? And you know, this this Ranger, McDonald, steps towards them and sort of says, "One one riot, one Ranger." Wow. <laughs> That's all you yeah. need, just yeah. one. It's so badass, though. Yeah, yeah. it's so badass. <laughs> so cool, and it stuck with me ever since then. It was something that I wanted to, to use if possible. It's been used a lot. They've got handguns called one, you know, one Ranger, one riot. They've you know, they've got badges, T-shirts. It's a you know, it's 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 ingrained into the mythology of the Texas Rangers and Texas, for that matter. Uh, but I knew that there was something there that could be good. I love these pictures like uh, Coogan's Bluff, where you take a, uh, a Arizona Ranger and you drop him into 1960s, you know, yeah. uh, San Francisco, you know, or you take Brannigan, a, a Chicago cop, and you drop him into London. You know, I I, I loved I loved the I watched uh, McLeod with my grandfather on his lap, you know, which was you know a a cowboy down the streets in London on his horse, and I thought this was just really interesting. It was a I thought it needed to be done. It hadn't been done in a while, and films are just repeating themselves every every decade or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but we came up with this idea. I pitched it to Thomas Jane, who I love, and you know who has a equally sort of uh, keen interest in old Hollywood, older movies, you know, cowboys and, and the mythology of the West. Uh, and he, he responded very favorably and very, very quickly after that, we were, we were, we got a budget and a Lionsgate hopped on board and, and we're in England shooting this thing probably for too little money by the end of the day, but that's okay. You know, it's, it's you know, you, you, you do your best and you get out there and we, you know, in lieu of faking it like they do on the bigger movies, we had to do a lot of the stunts and, guns and special effects with actual guns and blanks and actual bombs and actual guys hitting the ground and getting bruised and beat up right. uh and they were a fantastic job we had a great team on it you know the, the fight you know the, the three big fight scenes between thomas and uh jess Liaudin, oleg and ranger tyree was sort of the core of the movie for me i wanted to a guy who didn't do martial arts he didn't fight with knives he wasn't john wick he was just a he knew law enforcement hand to hand but he was just one of those critters that doesn't give up you know Right, mm -hmm. sure. You knock him down. I've seen this in real life, by the way. I've seen stuff. <laughs> my friend had a car crash and wrecked, and his legs up by his face. He's done a head-on with a truck on a movie, and they're they're flying in the helicopter to pick him up. And, and he looks up at the stunt board and he says, "I'll do another one. I'm ready for another one, boss." <laughs> it's like, wow. I have to shovel you onto the uh, onto the helicopter, dude. You're not doing another stunt. <laughs> but it's, I love that, and that's. It's what separates the men from the boys in the world, you know, the ability. And I think we enjoy watching that. I hope we do, you know. I hope I hope that's something. It was great. It was a great, great freaking movie. Um, and you did get to use the one riot, one ranger thing at the top there. But just to see Thomas Jane kicking ass again, I haven't seen him in a while, and I yeah. love that dude. And a uh, few standout moments were the exchange of dialogue between Thomas Jane and John Malkovich in the limousine. That was great. I don't want to spoil anything. But also the um, 
the chemistry between uh, Dominique uh, Tipper and Thomas was fantastic. They made great, great, great partners through that film. Uh, and I'm curious, what, what did the casting look like? I mean, you already kind of talked about reaching out to Thomas, but as far as casting the rest of the film, are these people you already had in mind? Or, uh, you know, how did this well, happen? It's different. You know, it's a panic attack. You know, it's 80% of my job is, is that casting. If I get the wrong cast, I'm, I'm not an acting teacher. You know, I can't pull a performance out of someone. I can do my best. I can create an environment where it comes. So it's a huge leap, a risk, an act of faith for me. Uh, and I take it very seriously. We knew we needed someone that could keep up with Thomas. He's he's quite he's quite intimidating on set. There's quite a lot of him. He's quite forceful. He does things his way. You know, he's, he wants it done. And if we had the wrong actor opposite him, who was intimidated by that, the film wouldn't work because right. the characters carry her own with him. Uh, and he recommended Dominique. I met her and knew straight away she was perfect. She's 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 strong as nails, hard as nails. You know, yeah. A lot of these. All these younger women actors are tough because they, they they have to go through a lot to survive in the game. That's why there's such a high attrition rate. They do one or two movies, they get fed up of all the abuse and they go. But she's tough and she she lets you have it and she gets out there. She's good with props, guns, choreography, and just, you know, and, and handling people like Thomas, you know, and me. And uh, it's brilliant. I, I thought she was wonderful. Uh, Dean Jagger, I've known for a long time, you know, two decades. Uh, I've watched his career go from indie movies through Lord of the Rings and uh, not Lord of uh, uh, Game of Thrones and uh, Warrior, the TV show he's doing. I really wanted to work with him, and I hope I've done him justice in this. I think he's brilliant personally. It's a very understated. He doesn't play the bad guy. He plays a man who's got a lot of problems. You know, he's right. realizing his, his friends are dropping away from him. Uh, all his past expectations have gone out the window, and he's realizing, you know, he's got a he's got a reinvent himself or, or throw in the towel it's it's sort of an interesting part Oleg is played by Jess Lee Alden. I'd seen something he'd done in a friend of mine Scott Adkins film called One Shot and I thought he did a really good job in that you know he played a bad guy but there's one scene where he's, he's sending a guy to his death and you'd think he was in, he was really it was it was his own son I thought he did a great job with it I like that I like people that don't have multi-dimensions to it uh, I was so pleased we got Patrick Bergen, you know, dug him up out in Ireland and flew him over and he was wonderful. You know, I, I watched a few films of him as I was, you know, Robin Hood picture that he did uh, and uh, uh, Mountains and the Moon. And I just just was a big fan of his. So I'm glad we got him in there. Sure. Uh, and Malkovich, I love Malkovich is is a wonderful, hilarious, pleasant presence. And uh, he played very well opposite TJ. So it was good. It was good. Casting was fun. And then, you know, Nick Moran, I've got in there from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels as a Russian. He did very, I thought he did well. You don't even know he's in there. Uh, there's a few good, there's a few good people. There's a couple that I just, you know, I had brought to me by the UK producer who I ended up really liking. I took them on to two more films after this one. Uh, right. Uh, Chris Johnson, some others that I think are going places, you know. So that was nice. It's always nice to meet new people. But the biggest thing on this was the logistics, you know, make, making a film for a small amount of money that's set in London, Ukraine, Mexico, and uh, uh, Texas, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> How do we do this? And that was fun. So then I would assume with your experience in stunts that you you were your own stunt coordinator, or is that not the case? Uh, I don't ever do my own stunt coordinating. I find that's dangerous because as a director, I'm asking for dangerous things. And so... I need a stunt man to temper me. You know, when I was a stunt man, I had to talk the directors down. I had to make it safe. Uh, if I do that, then then I'm I'm no longer getting the most out of 
the business. So I hire a very good stunt coordinator who's worked with me for years. Uh, and I tell him how dangerous I want it to be. And I want him to work it out. I'll give him some hinters on what I think I would do. And we come up with it that way, you know, yeah. uh, that's the, you've got to push the envelope. You have to push the envelope as a director. You, you know, you, you, you've got to give them a challenge. They love a challenge. Anyway, stunt guys, they live for it. You know, the good ones do anyway. They want to know what they can do, what, how far to the edge they can go. You know, you ask them to go 40 miles an hour into a pipe ramp, they're all going to hit it at 60 or 70. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you want him to, you want him to take a flat back. He's going to, he's going to try and do a, he's going to try and do a somersault and land on his front, you know? It's yeah. that's guys that you want, and you you. So I give them challenges that are that are hair raising and terrifying, and then they sit in a they, they huddle like a football huddle, and they work out how they're going to do it. They come back to me and say, "What you want is not possible, but we were talking, and what we've got we think is even better. How about this?" And I go, "Yes, yeah, awesome, guys, let's do it." You know, and it's sort of ha- it's it's not much different to that. I write it into the script usually. I've got my ideas. If I'm dead set on. It, and I've got a manner that I feel is safe of executing it. I'll I'll take that to the team and I'll say, look, this is how we'll do it, and they'll do it. But most of the time, we're pushing, 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 trying to get something really interesting. You know, trying to get the best we can. It's not always possible because you know the, some of these films I've done three or four now that were were quite quite tight uh, in terms of time, you know, rehearsal time and how much money we've got to spend on gags and gear and and and, and, and harnesses and things. So you've got to be very creative to make those ones look as good as they can be and not actually end up sending people to the hospital, which is the ultimate fail. Right. Have there been any like standout stunts that you've done that you're like, yes, this right here is why I do this. Well, the fight scenes I've done, I love, I really love the fight scene in, in Avengement. I thought that turned out beautifully, but if you mean fit ones that I actually did personally, uh, I did about 60 feet into water on Cutthroat Island, which I thought I really, really, terrified me doing that one. There's a lot of sharks in the water. They're gray reef sharks. Oh, wow. And I swim guys and I said, there's tons of them down there. They weren't there this morning, but you realize <laughs> we've, got, we've got a jetty with all the craft service on and people are dropping the food in the water. So by, by about midday, oh, of the, course. The, so the water is moving with all these fins. Uh, so I had the safety guy over and I said, is it okay? I mean, are, are, are there, he said, no, they're not aggressive. And then, and then he thought about it. He came back. But if you land on one, it might turn around and bite you. <laughs> <don't> <laughs> they may become defensive. And I said, yeah, but they're in the water. I'm hitting it at 60, 60 feet. I can't steer. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, if you hit one, you might even kill it, too, going down there. Yeah. I think the witch, he, he shrugged and kept, kept, kept walking. So that was <laughs> – but I think I'm still here. I've got my limbs. But it was a uh, – Little moments like that are sort of fun. It's never actually the stunt, but it's the byproduct of the stunt that's the most terrifying, you know. Gotcha. Some, honestly, some of them where it's twenty feet onto asphalt, but you've got to stay standing and run off, and you're doubling the actor jumping from one building to the ground, and you're like, oh god, because there's no way to hit it twenty feet and really, you know, I can roll and tuck roll and can do all this kind of stuff, but you know, they'll want to do it at two o'clock in the morning, right after they called lunch, when you've got a big full belly and it's. So it's a boring stunt. It's a guy jumping off a wall, but you realize you can break both your ankles, fall forward, break your wrist, and do something to your head if you land incorrectly. Right. And so it's rather boring ones, which are the ones that fill you with great fear, because you know the big stunts. There's going to be tons of guys there. You know, I did one on on uh, Mars attacks as the doors open. Oh, nice! It's a underground bunker. An air ram goes off. You know, a bomb goes off. Uh, I'm thrown through the air as Secret Service. There's a fire ball chasing me. I've caught on fire. And then I hit the metal staircase and come down the stairs. So it's, so it's an air ram, a fire gag, and a stair fall in one. 
but there was tons of people around making sure it was safe. It was good. I was padded up. You did it. You did it. I think we did it four takes. And it's fantastic. Move on. And it, it was not four takes because of me. It was four takes because it was a one with Jack Nicholson and the aliens in the shot, you know? Uh, and so, you know, that, that on a film like that, that sort of stuff is easy. It looks great, but those aren't the ones you really hurt yourselves on. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, <laughs> annoying ones, you know, a little, a, a slow speed car hit, perhaps. There's so much can go wrong. If your leg, you know, if you're, you're, the grips of your shoe catch as that car you know hits you and you don't quite get onto the hood in time it'll break your leg in the most horrible way imaginable you know? oh my god so it's it's these smaller ones that are less interesting to talk about that usually make the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end and cause the pucker factor and there's been a few of those over the years you know as i say the 20 foot onto asphalt sure the roll the, the slope the car hits you know these things that are not necessarily great moments in stunt in the stunt uh, you know, library, but they are—they are ones that I felt very proud to get out of. Yeah, of I've course. never thought of it like that before. Mm. Like I would always think the opposite. You know, not <laughs> being, you know, somebody in the industry like that. Listen, those big ones really give you a puck effect as well. And I've been involved in a handful of those. Just a handful. Uh, that was really so. Those roles were, those jobs were usually sort of kept for the guys that were the real hardcore pro high high fallers or motorcycle guys. Nowadays, you bring in specialists to do this. You wouldn't put them all random to a position like that. You choose someone that was trained in high falls, trained in horses, trained in motorcycles, as you should, as as should be the way, you know. Uh, sure. But it's it's a wonderful business. Uh, all of that side of it was interesting for me, and I love performing. I really got a kick out of it. Uh, but where it really resonated was uh, 2008 stock market crash. My I had I was directing by then. My money went away. I was left suddenly realizing I was in hot you know, five figures really, really badly, like, like above 50, you know, it's like, oh shit, what am I going to do? And, and uh, I had to ask for my stunt pads back. I'd given them away. <laughs> I had to <laughs> ask for them back and I had to hang my shingle out as a stuntman again. And in that, in that forced return to stunting, I worked with P.T. Anderson on The Master, Steven Spielberg on Lincoln and Kenneth Branagh on Thor. And I got to watch what they were doing very, very closely. I was an older stunt guy. So I was put next to them to help run the set and 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 be be right next to the monitor and it was like the most incredible postgraduate course of filmmaking possible i was wanting to chew my arm off at the time because i couldn't believe i was back doing stunts but very quickly i realized this is the most fantastic opportunity don't blow it watch what's going on watch how these guys do what they do and learn baby and it was wonderful i you know by the end of the year and a half i got my money back to where it needed to be there were calls coming in for more jobs to direct i think it was savage dog came in and brought me out of stunts again uh with scott adkins and by that point now i've got a completely different outlook on making movies i realized the first five or six films i've made prior to the stock market crash i was shooting the budget i was shooting the schedule i was trying to appease the producers uh, and, and whatever you do, if, if that's who you're trying to appease, the film will never, ever be any good. It will be on budget. It will be on time. <laughs> yeah. It will never be great. And, and I watched how Spielberg worked with actors. It was all about the performance. He had us put action sequences together. He chose, he picked, he cherry-picked what he wanted. We went in, they shot very efficiently. If we weren't ready, he didn't slog the hell out of it. You know, I think he told Matt Damon something along the lines. Matt Damon asked him for a, a third take. And Spielberg said, no, we're moving on. He said, I, I can either waste 12 minutes, 15 minutes, making this scene maybe 0.1% better, or I can go over there and spend that 12 minutes getting something really cool and exciting. <laughs> 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 and, well, I'd never thought of it that way. And, uh, you know, uh, 
and and you know watching uh, P.T. Anderson work the way that he worked, never catch calling cut, working completely in character with Joaquin, who was playing Frank at the time. Everyone on set had to call him Frank. He did not break character. He sat in the corner of the room, looking at the wall between takes as people did it. I had to hire actors, stuntmen, who were prepared to get punched, kicked, bitten. I'd call them up and say, look. I know this sounds stupid, but Joaquin may punch you, may kick you, may bite you. You cannot obviously do anything back to him. Uh, <laughs> if this is too much for you, I completely understand. It's, it's no rub. I'll call you for another job, but I just need to know if you can do it on this. And of course, every single one was like, yeah, fine, I'll do it. These big guys come in. So it's six big guys all around him. Sure enough, he's biting, kicking, elbowing, but he got free and he ran towards the judge. And attacked the judge and kicked him in the shin. Unfortunately, who wasn't one of my stunt guys, but that's all right. <laughs> but but these 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 were some of the things that. And that's that's a, a amusing anecdote. But if you imagine the immersive nature of all of the actors on that, the way that P.T. Anderson created that atmosphere, that they could just simply be those characters without having to be distracted, without having to think about the myriad of other distractions that go on. Uh, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was precious. And whether you like the film or not, who cares? The performances are so engaging. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then the same with Kenneth Branagh. You know, having a notebook, writing down. And by the second day, I was thinking these actors are going to get very bored of this because he's giving them all these notes after every take. You know, it's it's just like tons of notes. But of course, that's not the way that actors' mind works. They love the attention. They actually <laughs> love all the parts. They love the fact he's watching it all. Whether they're doing what he's telling them or not doesn't matter. But the fact that they're performing to some form of audience is what makes them do their best work. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience for me. So I came out of that with just a vengeance, wanting to make good movies and get out there. And, you know, sure, they were action movies. But I, I felt the stuff that I did with Scott elevated his career. Uh, we did a film eventually up to three or four in a, in a row that was called Revengement, which got me signed by Gersh. It got him, you know, over, he, he preached whatever is the quarter million dollar fee mark or whatever. It was just a, it was just, you know, it really helped. So so in many ways having to have that year of, of sort of, uh, what should we, humility was one of the greatest, greatest things that ever happened to me. It allowed pictures like One Ranger to come to, you know, which as, as much as it looks like a B movie, it's character driven, you know. It is character driven. It's not driven by the action. The action's not big enough for it to drive the movie. It was it was a great movie. And and I've Thank you heard, so much. Well, thank you, man. I love I love you know, when you take a chance on a film, a lot of the times you're disappointed. And I'm not saying it just because you're here. I'm not saying it's kiss ass. It was a great movie. Great action. Like you were saying, you know, a lot of uh, people walked away with uh, bruises and bumps you could tell you could tell those dudes were really getting the shit oh, yeah. beat out of them uh, they, they gave everything for it it's like you know they just really invested i yeah. think they, I, I, I visited the second unit one time you know where they were doing the fight scene they they, they mop up shots that i've missed they they catch all the shots i give them a list i, I missed these five inserts or whatever I, I go over to the second unit i see thomas jane stunt double with his cowboy hat his feet up and he's eating a packet of english crisps I don't know why it made me so angry. And so I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I've, I've fought for a second unit to shoot. I fought for the extra money and you're sitting on your fat ass eating crisps, you know? And I, I wanted to knock him out of his hand. And, and he said, oh, hold up. Jesus, dude. Uh, Thomas is over there. He doesn't want me doubling. He's doing the stunts. I, I hasn't let me do anything all day. And at that point, it was like, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Back to your crisps. Thomas is dripping with sweat and he's blood on his face and he's he's fallen over, he's bruised his knees, hurt his knee from the beginning of the shoot. He fell over on day two on the concrete there and it's cold and 
when you get off a plane, your, your joints are weird, you, you know. So he was he was injured anyway, but he was just giving it full out with this fight with with Jess Lee who's a big boy and strong as an ox. Uh, and and Thomas threw himself. He put himself into a lot of that, but far more than he should have done, far more than he needed to. But I'm thankful for it. But yeah, we had a we had a one or two moments like that. I I, I would hold back on the expletives after. Some <laughs> guys are bigger than me anyway, so it was a foolish thing to do on, on every on every front. Now I had uh, heard in another interview you did that there's a possibility of this film getting a sequel. Uh, I would love to do a sequel to it. I think, I think, uh, knowing what I know now, I could go back and do something a lot leaner, a lot meaner, uh, a lot more creative. This film, you know, this script was made to do for about thirty million. It ended up being done for, you know, a tenth of that, uh, which is very, very tough. Uh, if I'd had the time and knowing what was going to go on, I would have chosen a couple of the battles a little bit better. And other scenes got a bit ropey where there wasn't quite enough money. Uh, so if I was going to do a sequel, you'd go in knowing all of that and you'd just create something that was. A little less ambitious in terms of how many locations and countries I shot right. in, mm-hmm. and 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 know and and lean into these strengths of Thomas and Dominic and you know these fight scenes and and just give the audience something really really interesting. I think so. I would love to. Uh, it's really a timing thing for me at the moment because I'm quite busy. I I I love working, so I sign for a lot of jobs, which can come back and bite you sometimes. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm out there and, and trying to just push. The other part of me is I just I love challenging myself to do things i haven't done before uh and i also get a bit nervous a bit nervous about going back to doing you know to a sequel to do and i did a sequel of one of my films once before i did a debt collectors uh, after i'd done the first one and what i found it was very nerve-wracking for me because i didn't want to copy anything i'd done in the first but i knew i had to stay in the same universe and right. stay in the same rule book uh and it was extraordinarily difficult. Some of the, you know, I was writing all night long before filming, you know, two hours sleep, again, fully dressed. You really don't smell very good when you're directing. <laughs> Drinking my uh, coffee for breakfast and lunch and, and, and writing, writing. And it, it took an immense amount of work to make the second one work. So I've got to be careful about saying yes, but I think it would be exciting. Generally, I find the idea of doing another Ranger movie exciting. Yes. Oh, I'd love to see it. How fantastic. Now, I think you already uh, referenced these films a little bit ago, and I know they're still in pre-production, so if you can't talk about them, you know, that's fine. But uh, Bodica and Chief of Station, are you allowed to talk about these movies at all, or is it too early? I am. I am. Bodica comes out at the end of the year. It's a film that uh, I was an, I've been enormously passionate about for some time. Uh, very, very lucky to have got it financed again. Can't quite describe how it works, but I got some people <laughs> willing to put in extraordinary amounts of money. Uh, Olga Kirilenko plays the title role. Uh, she does it. I think it's the best performance of any film I've done. Uh, she has to go through a transformation, which is bold, brave, and fearless. You know, this is a woman who gets her teeth knocked out, her eyebrows out. You know, she's disfigured and comes back to lead, to unite the entire uh, 2,000-year-old, you know, uh, English nations. There was no nation at the time. It was just a bunch of different Celtic tribes. She was the first person to pull them all together as one unit and go after the Romans, who were the occupiers very brutal occupying force in 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 england uh and she gave them hell i mean if you look at the history books uh the amount of romans mm. and and collaborators she burned and killed is unbelievable uh, uh archaeologists will show you in london if you go through the dirt you know you cut a, a left section of dirt away it's brown it's it's reddish dirtish mud color and then suddenly it's black mm-hmm. pitch black because she burned it to the ground baby <laughs> she burned the the, wow. the brick 
the glass. You know, it's it's this thick layer of black, and then you come back to post Boudicca times. AD forty three was when she burned it. She burned London, Colchester, all of these Roman cities uh, in this furious rage. Uh, her, her army was up to you know a hundred thousand Celts at one point. You know, it was incredible. Wow. And she lost, but we have a statue of her next to Big Ben by the Houses of Parliament with her two daughters in the chariot. It's uh, it's it's very well known. So hopefully, people will dig that. Uh, we used over fifty gallons of of blood, fake blood on that one. Uh, <laughs> it's the most I've used in any film, and it was cut with water, by the way. So it's it was a lot more than that. So it's quite a violent movie. But I will I will end our little discussion on Boudicca by saying that what I've shot, what I've shown is a tiny percentage of what the Romans actually did to the Celts mm. 2,000 years ago. They were so awful. Uh, we've just shown a little bit of it and it got through nearly, you know, 50 gallons of this fake life. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, the, film, the film is a hell of a movie. Olga Kurilenko is absolutely unbelievable in it. Uh, and then I went off and did a uh, 1980s spy movie in uh Budapest with Aaron Eckhart, again, Olga Kirilenko and Alex Petipper, which is uh, a throwback to, you know, a spy who came in from the cold, uh, Red Square, Gorky Park, that sort of thing. Uh, it's very, very cool. Really interesting, really smart, slow burn, got some good action in it, really, really good car chase in it. But it was uh, a challenge for me and really something rather, rather wonderful. And Aaron Eckhart, I just love. Yeah, he's uh, fantastic. I've scored a, of 24, so. Some good stuff on the burner, guys. I would really say, yeah. Are there release dates uh, set for these or no? Uh, uh, Boudicca is Saban, and it is it is towards the end of the year before November. So Okay, cool. Get a limited theatrical in the U.S., and then it's Netflix UK and the U.K. Uh, it's, it's a hell of a picture. I hope people love it. It's really, really something from the gut, you know? I get You get to do one like that maybe once in a lifetime, and it's, it really right. is a good one. It sounds awesome. Maybe we can get you back on the yeah. show once it's out. We can talk more about it. I would be honored to be here again and would love to talk about that one. As you can guess, or see, I quite like talking about my work. <laughs> Nothing we wrong with listening. that. Nope. Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, to all the work you have done as a stuntman, as a director, a writer, um, all the fantastic people you've learned from worked alongside. Is there, when's the book coming out, man? Like, I would love to read your book. Oh, that's so sweet of you. It's lovely. Uh, got to be a couple more hits before there's a book. I think I want to do something that I feel is represents all the effort and energy and learning that I've got. And something will fire. Uh, it's it, you know touched around. It got some interesting. You know, got, there's some real. There's some stuff that's raised eyebrows. It's, I've upset a few people over there. I've hurt some feelings over there. But if I can do something that that resonates, at that point maybe there'll there'll be a time to in, look inward. You know, but for now it's just onwards, forwards, forwards. Sure. Let's not not dwell in the past too much. You know. But it would be nice to do that. I hope you do, because yeah. I would love to read it. You've had me on the edge of my seat this whole time, the stories you've been telling. That's incredible. Well, thank you, Jesse, so much for being here. Again, uh, One Ranger, I can't recommend it enough. We'll put links up on our website to help direct people over that way. But thank you. The one thing I would love to say is if people get the chance, please, please watch it on Blu-ray or DVD. I know, I know streaming is the way to do it now and everyone loves it, but if you get the Blu-ray and the DVD, you get a closer look at what we made, uh, mm. what we, the, the intended purpose of the shots and how they look, but also there's the most wonderful behind-the-scenes EPK and it, and it you know, interviews with the cast and the crew and me explaining what went into it. And I think in this era of watching films that are all in the $100 million range with a $100 million publicity budget you know from 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 the one about the atom bomb through to the 
Keanu Reeves killer. I'm not going to mention names because that's uh, any of them. <laughs> our, our, our past based on wonderful comic books. These are enormous movies. They represent the A movies. There's something wonderful, something beautiful, something personal about going to see a B movie. Since the beginning of our business, you had the A movie and underneath you had the B movie. Quite often the B movie resonated more with mm, you than yes. the A movie. Right. Hell yeah. Or, or Don Siegel or Bud Bodica. These were films that, that people loved and hung on to far longer than they, that, you know, the, the more homogenized A movie. Search out these films. Uh, look at it on DVD, Blu-ray. It's out there at Target, all over the place, anywhere it sells <laughs> the anachronistic technology. Uh, and have a look at the EPK because it's brilliant. Jonathan Method directed it and put it together. And it, and it really lets you know the, the energy and effort and time and blood that went into making this movie. And it makes it a little bit more of an experience. You know what I mean? Sure. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I'm regretful that I didn't get the Blu-ray. <laughs> Maybe I still will. But no awesome. if you want to, I can send you a link to the EPK and we can cheat completely. Hey, I'm not going to yeah. say no. I'm not going to say no. But Jesse, man, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here with us today, man. Pleasure's all mine, guys. All right. And that was our conversation with Jesse V. Johnson. Damn, that was a lot of fun. Yes. Right? Yes. And he's English. Time, yeah. And indeed, like Randy said at the top of the episode, and you've all now heard... He is indeed English. He's an awesome guy, though. Yeah. It's so great to have him on, and I can't wait to see some of his projects coming up. Yeah. And, you know, again, like I told him, I'm not bullshitting anybody when I say that One Ranger is a fantastic movie. It's uh, Thomas Jane. Come on. You guys should see it. I mean, but not only just the fact that it's Thomas Jane, it's great writing. Yeah. It's great writing. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a few awesome lines in there that Thomas has that... Uh, just kind of put chills down your spine. Just the badassery of the Texas Rangers and watching Thomas Jane be a Texas Ranger. Come on. I'm okay. hearing that Thomas Jane did his stunts, too. So yeah. It's yeah. even better to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm no lie intrigued by that Blu ray. I'm going to have to track it down. Yeah. Target, I think I'll put the Target has them. I think I'll put the Target link on uh, <laughs> on the description here so people can get a physical copy, too. But yeah, there you can rent it, too. But like but like Jesse said, let's, let's go for that physical copy. I know I'm going to. Be the nerd and watch the extra scenes and stuff. Exactly. And uh, as far as where you can find Jesse, just Google his name. He'll come up. But uh, social media handles. I found him on Instagram at Jesse V. Johnson. Simple enough. Mm, easy. So uh, big thanks to him once again uh, for being on the show. And with that, Jack, what do we have on the website? Go to CannedAirPodcast.com where you can see show highlights, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, become a patron, buy some merch. Uh, see some YouTube videos, and if you'd like to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contacts page. There it is. And once again, find us on social media, on Twitter at CandarePod, on Instagram at Canned underscore Air, and on TikTok at CandarePodcast. Uh, many different ways to follow us and to support us on the website Jack was just talking about, CandarePodcast.com, the merch tab, the Patreon tab. You know, Support your favorite uh, podcast and get a little bit of something back in return. Uh, Randy. Also, yeah, give us some love no matter how you're listening to us. Uh, if you have any standout moments from the past 500, let us know. Mm-hmm. And huge shout out to evergreenpodcast.com. There it is. There it is. And I think that's all we've got this week, right? That's it. That's it. So until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Randy Hardenbrook. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and be excellent to each other. He's English. <laughs> <laughs>
house is on fire. I need to get help. Do it from outside. Blowtorch. Whenever there's a fire in your house, be sure to get outside immediately. And once outside, get on CandarePodcast.com. Well, thanks for the tip, Blowtorch, but just one question. What about the fire? And no one is half the battle. G.I. Joe! This has been a Canned Air production. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no. Right.